1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be talking about a really interesting book titled Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise, just out in 2022 from Yale University Press. And this book has been written by two authors, um, Dr. Christopher Marquis and Dr. Kunyuan Chiao, Um, And I have Chris with me today to talk about this book that is really important and really interesting both as a historical assessment and as recommendations for current practice for I think a lot of different kinds um, of people from outside of China who might be interested in understanding more of the dynamics that impact uh, China and Chinese business today whether you're working within China or um, have any interactions internationally this book is probably going to be of interest so Chris thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about the book.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Miranda. And also, thank you so much for the nice words about the book.
1: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and your co-author a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Sure. Uh, so, as you mentioned, my name is Chris Marquis, and I am at Cambridge University. I just actually joined Cambridge in January of this year, uh, so I've been settling in for the last uh, you know ten months or so. Uh, and my position is a Sin E Professor of Chinese Management, and I'm at the Business School. Uh, my co-author Kunyan Chao is a recent PhD grad from Cornell, and I was you know recently at Cornell for seven years before joining Cambridge. And uh, Kunyan recently graduated with his PhD and has joined the faculty of Georgetown. Uh, I think you asked also why we decided to write the book. Uh, And, you know, Kunyan and I have been working together for many, many years now. And most of the work we do, you know, is uh, peer-reviewed academic uh, journal articles. And the type of research we do is typically quantitative work. So we have, you know, large databases of entrepreneurs in China or, you know, publicly traded uh, Chinese firms. And, you know, we've done a number of of papers looking at business government relation relations, and we're thinking about, you know, how can we take this, you know, empirically grounded work and try to actually translate some of the insights that we have into uh, into management recommendations, recommendations for policy. Uh, so we decided to put a lot of that research together and then write this book. And it turns out you know, that was our initial goal, but we ended up going way, way beyond uh, the papers that we wrote uh, and really trying to ground our arguments in interviews, new interviews with entrepreneurs, collect a lot of data on newspapers, um, newspaper articles back to the founding of the PRC so that we could you know, really sort of understand how ideas changed uh, throughout time.
1: I'm glad you mentioned a bit about the kind of data and sources used in this book, because I think it is definitely a really interesting way that you've brought the past and present together through these different kinds of sources. And I'm sure we'll get into a bit more detail um, as we go through the discussion about the book, Um, But I'd love to kind of next talk about the title, right, as an obvious starting point. um, The title, as I said, is Mao and Markets. Now, there's obviously a really common assumption in a lot of ways that China today has much more of an open economy and therefore Mao and communism are a lot less relevant. Um, This book argues very persuasively against that idea. Um, And that kind of leaves us, though, with an initial question to answer, which is that Um, China has changed rather a lot since Mao died. Um, Even the Chinese government admits this. I mean, it's not a secret. It's not a particularly controversial statement. Um, But you show that Mao's influence has nevertheless endured and is still really impactful to key um, economic aspects and particular entrepreneurs today. How is it possible for his influence to have endured even with the multiple decades and the multiple changes in China that we've seen since his death?
0: Yeah, really, really good question. And I think, you know, this is is also one of the reasons why we really wanted to um, to write this book. You know, so, so, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, you look at Chinese cities. I mean, there's these amazing gleaming skyscrapers, uh, incredible transportation, you know, infrastructure. So economically, there has truly been absolutely a transformation, uh, between 1978 and uh, and today, but actually within the political system, which is dominated by the Chinese communist party, uh, there's been less of a change. And, you know, even, Current uh, current day president Xi, you know, says frequently, which is a, which is actually a quote of Mao's. You know, east west north south, the CCP leads everything, uh, and so I think this is one aspect of Mao's influence that has really endured, and it endured through you know Deng Xiaoping, who is the sort of supreme leader. Um, you know, a number of years after Mao and Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, who followed him uh, up until Xi Jinping. So one thing I think is uh, this idea of the Chinese Communist Party really at the center of uh, the government and the economy and even the military. I mean, it's sort of interesting in China, the military reports actually into the Chinese Communist Party. It doesn't actually report into the, you know, government or state like it does in you know, most countries, or at least most uh, democratic countries. Uh, so, so that is sort of one one area, sort of the institutions and how the, you know, the CCP is really still very much at the core and has been at the core, you know, throughout the period, you know, in the you know, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. I think what is even more interesting, though, uh, and that's something, you know, you can hear President Xi say a lot, so it's not, you know, super surprising is, uh, we actually ground our book, uh, theoretically in a number of the, you know, peer reviewed academic papers we've done too in imprinting theory. So this is a perspective, you know, people might've, might've heard of it, you know, as it relates to social sciences, but if they haven't, uh, they probably have heard about it, this sort of groundbreaking work in the early 20th century, that Conrad, Conrad Lorenz did, um, the famous Nobel prize winning, I think he was Austrian, um, Biologist, You know, he w- did these uh, series of experiments on a variety of different animals uh, to see, you know, things like, you know, geese and ducks after they hatched out of their egg. Um, you know, if they saw Conrad Lorenz or a cow or their, you know, their mother goose. Um, you know, who, who would they end up following? And it turns out that, you know, wh- whoever, whatever they saw first, they would imprint on, he said, and then this would, they would assume that this, you know, entity was their, uh, was their mother and follow them around. And there's these sort of famous pictures of Lorenz walking through streams and walking through fields with a, you know, sort of row of ducks or geese following him. This was then actually uh, in a less deterministic way uh, imported into the social sciences and, has really been been studied um, in a number of, of areas through economics and sociology. My my home discipline is sociology, uh, psychology, and the idea being that actually there are these sort of influential periods uh, for people that have really deep effects on them uh, for a long period of time. And so we have a, a you know a number of discussion in the paper in in the book and actually in a number of the papers we do as well on how. Uh, for individuals joining the Chinese Communist Party and going through the indoctrina- indoctrination, socialization—you uh, know, over a year, writing reports, writing, you know, self-criticisms, all kinds of things—actually, really establishes this very deep um, Maoist imprint. Uh, so, so there are these effects at the individual level, uh, which you know, deep effects which actually endure through people's uh, through people's lives. This is also then throughout the culture continue to be, um, you know, sort of exhibited. So for instance, or, you know, sort of exhibited reinforced. So for instance, uh, you know, curriculums from grade school through college, Um, you know, people, the students take compulsory classes on Mao Zedong thought. Uh, You know, I discovered this, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why we focused on Mao is just so many times I would you know, just unexpectedly bump, bump into Mao when I was either in China or, you know, doing, doing my work. So for instance, I was on admissions panels at Harvard where I was before Cornell and Cornell and at Cornell, um, what, you know, one day I was browsing a Chinese applicant's, uh, file and saw the characters for Mao Zedong Sishang, which means, you know, Mao Zedong theory on his, on this person was a male transcript. Uh, and and it was a required class. And then I looked closer, and it turned out he had taken two in his university required classes on Mao Mao thought. Uh, I went to the English translation of this because the universities provide a sort of notarized English version, too. And it just is described very neutrally as Chinese philosophy. And I looked in a number. I mean, not every university. I mean, all students in China. I was very curious, and I looked through a number of students. Uh, transcripts, uh, Chinese students' transcripts, and all of them had taken Mao classes in Mao thought. Although you know there's a variety of translations, not all of them translated them as Chinese uh, philosophy. So, so, so education, movies, TVs. There's red tourism, people visiting, you know, Yan'an, where you know Xi Jinping and the Standing Committee of the Politburo just visited right after the 20th Party Congress. Uh, so there's all these ways of reinforcing. Uh, the influence of Mao. I, you know, one of the times when I was visiting Changsha in Hunan Province, when I was spending time in China, uh, I went and visited Mao's hometown, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen. Actually, I mean, I visited, you know, Monticello and Mount Vernon, and you know, in the U.S., uh, and it's you know these very sort of erudite and not very crowded places, uh, but. But, but Shaoshan, which is Mao's hometown, I mean, it was flooded with visitors from the countryside, um, you know, and, and really just packed. And so I think that, I, I know, pro- apologize for the very long answer, but, but from, you know, the systems and institutions of the CCP uh, to individual culture um, and that are continually reinforced, I mean, you know, Mao continues to have very pervasive uh, influence on Chinese society.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think the the levels of different ways that Maoist thought is is taught, is influenced, is available, is really important to understanding. Um, the fact that it's not, for example, something someone has to seek out after a certain level of education to be able to understand the philosophy. right? It's um, essentially, as you said, mandatory in a lot of senses to engage with. Um, and I think that's an important point. So thank you for explaining the number of different sort of vectors <laughs> Um, of influence that it has in China. Um, I'd love to turn then to a perhaps less known influence in, to Chinese business and entrepreneurship today, um, but it's still a really crucial part of understanding uh, kind of how false and how maybe not useful the dichotomy is between communism and free markets, um, which is the idea of kind of grouping China and the USSR together. Mm -hmm. And that we can, oh, well, what one did, that will happen to the other. Okay, well, China, I guess, has avoided it so far, but it's inevitable at some point, right? Um, And that we can make economic comparisons between them, which at least I'm skeptical of. Um, And I admit, reading this book, I was kind of like, ah, okay, so you're skeptical too. Great. These are probably (laughs) not super similar um, things. And in fact, you both argue in the book that um, this lack of similarity is actually quite a lot on purpose that China has purposely learned things from what happened to the USSR in order to avoid a similar fate so can you tell us about kind of why they're not similar what was learned
0: sure a couple things um, so so one that is you know really still very visible today and even discussed today and there was a recent documentary uh, shown in China on this is sort of the importance of sort of maintaining history and 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 legitimacy of Mao. Uh, so a, a diagnosis of a problem you know problem why the Soviet Union collapsed is that you know the Soviet Union um, you know sort of was um, I, don't know, I don't know the right way to put this sort of historically nihilist uh, and that is a term that actually the CCP, Uses to describe, you know, denial of history. Uh, particularly, you know, the famous example is after Stalin died, Khrushchev, uh, the next supreme leader, you know, uh, really sort of um, denigrated and um, and, you know, described sort of the horrible things that he had done. And 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 China has believed that that actually by undermining. Early leaders and the Communist Party, you know, sowed doubt through the Russian population and the Russian system, which then actually led to the fall. So there's a big effort at maintaining history. You know, you can read about this. There's a lot of stories about this in the West about, you know, all this, you know, sort of censorship crackdown. Um, you know, when you know. Uh, when the Chinese Communist Party recently had its centenary, you know, 100 years in 2020, um, 2022, uh, or 2021, they, um, you know, published an official history of the Communist Party and, you know, you know, sort of whitewashed all of the really you know, disastrous things that happened at Mao's reign uh, and sort of elevated Mao and his importance. And this is because of this belief that, you know, we can't deny our history. Our history is really important to our legitimacy. And like I mentioned, they had a documentary as well about how, you know, this was a real key issue uh, with why the, the Soviet Union collapsed. I think another area is that, you know, the Soviet Union... Um, consciously adopted sort of the shock therapy approach uh, where in its decisions sort of forgetting about sort of the political uh, issues w- with, this, with you know, the communist party there, uh, you know, when deciding to reform economically, you know, took advice, you know, now, now people realize bad advice uh, from economists, you know, these many free market economists that think like, okay, let's just quickly introduce free market free markets you know deregulate prices and you know the magic of markets will create um you know this <laughs> a new democratic uh soviet union or russia or new democratic russia and you know that led to disaster econ- huge amounts of economic problems and then you know um, you know, a line could be traced to, you know, now the sort of oligarchs and concentration of wealth, people that when they spun off the, you know, state assets were, you know, basically given to the cronies of the, you know, sort of Putin and, and Putin and others. So uh, so I think these two things, and China, as we know, you know, took a much more gradualist approach, uh, opened these special economic zones initially for them, you know, Shenzhen being the most famous, where they were able to you know, have a limited experimental way of implementing the, um, you know, sort of economic reforms and changes. And then after they see what actually can work in the China context, that can actually be expanded and rolled out to the rest of the uh, country. So I think those are a couple of the key reasons why, you know, sort of this USSR analogy doesn't work. I mean, you sort of can't lump all communist um, systems into one bucket
1: especially not when one system learns from the other and actively tries to make sure that they're not the
0: same. Exactly, exactly.
1: Um, So now that we kind of have those two foundational ideas sorted, right? How does Mao's influence um, exist today? How is it transmitted? Um, And how, you know, making sure that we don't, for the rest of the conversation, sort of artificially conflate the USSR and China, um, I want to kind of get into one of the main ideas of the book. Um, and of course one you've already talked a little bit about, which is the impact of Maoist ideas on Chinese entrepreneurs. Um, and there's a lot of different kind of strands to this. So we'll probably piece, right. take it in pieces. Um, but maybe first we could start with the idea of how Maoist ideas impact how Chinese entrepreneurs think about competition or relations right. with foreign businesses.
0: Sure. Yeah. Let me, um, so I think I'll, I'll say a little bit about just sort of Mao's influence on Chinese entrepreneurs and their and how they compete in general. This is something, again, that I um, was really fascinating to learn about. Uh, I mean, so you know, I, I teach in a business school. I mean, although my PhD is in sociology, some of the typical sort of business school, um, you know, sort of person. Um, but so, so one interesting thing is that a, a lot of times competition, the sort of military analogies are given and military strategies are sort of adopted for, um, you know, for business like Sun Tzu or Van Clausewitz. I mean, there's, you know, lots of sort of popular books and I think even taught a little bit. Uh, in China, actually, uh, obviously uh, Sun Tzu is studied, but Mao is really seen as a business guru, as far as the military strategies that he had, and actually, you know, I, I think there's relative agreement that Mao was a disaster leader of a country. And from uh, uh, maybe not 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 among the Chinese Communist Party, this this <laughs> agreement, but but I think among people that study China from an, a more objective lens, there's you know a lot of. Sort of evidence that he, that that China was not well served from him, you know, certainly in the last parts of his reign with the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward. However, he was a very skilled um, military commander and military strategist. And many of the military strategies, very creative and unique and thoughtful as applied to China. Uh, many entrepreneurs and leading businesses uh, follow. So, for instance, one of these that I think is really fascinating is what is known as surrounding the cities from the countryside. And orthodox, sort of traditional, you know, Marxist Leninist theory uh, is that you know the people uh, that work in factories, the industrial laborers in cities, are sort of the key to to revolt, and that's what happened in the Soviet Union. Uh, and that you know the this is the, would be the core sort of the vanguard of of a communist rev- revolution, uh, and you know the so- Soviet Union actually was early funder of the CCP, and really pushed this idea and had a lot of very early military failures. Mao had the insight. Well, you know, actually China is not a tr- tremendously urban country, not tremendously industrialized. Uh, actually, what we have is a lot of rural peasants, uh, and what We should do as the you know uh, you know our military strategy should actually be first about uh, sort of conquering and gaining the sort of hearts and minds of the people in the countryside, and then we'll move into the cities. And this is the strategy that actually ended up working for working for the CCP. Uh, Many businesses have used this. For instance, Huawei, early in its uh, days in the 1990s you know, really an early startup, you know, Western telecommunications companies were very dominant and they realized, well, we're gonna go to the countryside and we're gonna actually uh, work on, you know, deploying, you know, telecommunications uh, infrastructure in places that these large companies, like I think at the time was Alcatel and Lucent actually are not going. We're gonna become large and successful by focusing on the rural market. And then, um, you know, sort of really come and dominate the cities, and that's actually what they did. And now they're, you know, this, you know, obviously a company that's a point of contention between, particularly the U.S. and and um, and China, but uh, but tremendously has grown tremendously, tremendously uh, successful, and you know, very innovative company. Uh, another more recent example is Pindodo, sort of online, uh, uh, sort of online platform. Uh, they've realized, okay, we have, you know, Alibaba. U.S. You know, Taobao and 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 JD in the big cities. So we're going to actually start in the rural locations, and this this you know worked for them. And so many entrepreneurs talk about how mile strategies are essential to. Competing in China, other things you know you hear entrepreneurs talk about. He said, "Never fight an unprepared war." The importance of protracted war. So you know things like sort of persistence and grit and 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 working hard, and all of these things um, are things that it, you know in our interviews really stood out. Uh, how many? Even if the, even if you know obviously the the Communist Party member entrepreneurs we talked to uh, would this would be very salient to them, but but all Chinese actually know. Many of these theories um, that Mao had, as applied to military, and so these were actually really, really sort of have been really important. Um, I, I realize you're, i mean—that was a little bit of a, of a preamble, I guess, to you to your main question, which is about, I think, foreign businesses, and so uh, one one of actually the the academic papers that that really inspired us, uh, sort of, was our academic papers uh, to really work deeper on this was. A paper where we looked at the internationalization of Chinese companies. And what the key findings of that uh, were is that, in some ways, the deeper the Maoist imprint, which we measured a bunch of ways, you know, sort of when they joined the CCP, um, you know and, and other and other sort of key aspects, you know, the less likely these entrepreneurs were to internationalize their firm. and this being both, going global themselves, uh, and also, uh, sort of accepting international partnerships or, or investment. You know, this is very interesting because it's very much against both the self interest of the entrepreneurs because they can grow their business. And secondly, um, they, um, you know, the Chinese government actually at the time or for the last, you know, 20 years has been promoting going global for Chinese businesses as a way to grow and expand the influence of China. So so even though the government is actually telling them to do this and it's in their financial interest, they are much less likely to do it. And this is with, you know, looking at, you know, with some pretty advanced statistical analyses over, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs over, you know, twenty-year period. So, so you know, we've pretty solid evidence that, you know, the more exposed you were to Mao, who is very nationalist, nationalistic, you know, not wanting foreigners to have control of China, and basically did a lot of things to sort of kick foreigners out. Um, you know, this is a, a important, um, you know, yeah, important important part of the book.
1: Mm. Definitely. And has, as you mentioned, sign kind of some obvious practical implications or recommendations. So given all of this that we've discussed so far, the impacts it can have, what would you say are kind of the key Maoist ideas that Western businesses or Western business people should understand when engaging with China?
0: Sure. So um, so one, I think, is and you know a lot of the we have so a little bit sort of case study types um, in in the book in addition to the quantitative analyses and 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 other textual material we have um, is you know really this this the importance of the CCP and nationalism above all else uh, and so you know, one of the, in some ways principles we have is sort of this, you know, thinking of it as country over capital. So, you know, you may have money, but really, and, and money is important, but really you need to appeal to, or sort of see how your business as, as a foreigner would fit into the sort of national, um, national priorities and plans. Uh, Another one, which uh, also was was a, an important aspect of, uh, in, from a number of angles of miles, uh, is in regards to in some ways frugality and resource consciousness. So this is something really to be very important to um, you know be, be keep in mind. Um, you know, many foreigners that I've talked to that have gone and worked and looked at Chinese business, the you know the level of um, sort of the level of scrimping and saving on, you know, materials and, and, you know, buildings and and even so much staff. So that much as, you know, the founder and and CEO is actually doing a lot of of very menial type things because of this, you know, very deep, you know, sort of saving money um, uh, ideology. Uh, Also, you know, the importance of context. And I think, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, the, this Soviet and and China analogy not working because of the different contexts, you know, the idea of Mao and the surround the cities of countryside, you know, sort of taking a theory from the West and sort of adapting it. I think really, I mean, China is a, you know, huge and diverse country and really trying to, you know, understand the, uh, you know, sort of culture and history and and that diversity is really essential. So I'd say sort of the th- third principle is this con- con- being sort of really conscious of the context and not saying, okay, I am have these great products. I'm going to sort of import them into China and they're going to immediately do well. I mean, you've, we've seen lots of examples of, you know, companies from Google to Uber to, you know, y- y- you name it, that have tried to mostly bring their model in for whole cloth and not adapted at the Chinese market and have failed. I mean, and part of that obviously as well is that, you know, Chinese, um, Given the large market, it ha- it ends up gr- sort of growing up, so to speak, a number of really powerful uh, incumbent firms that are really really well tailored. So if you're Google, it's really going to be hard to compete against Baidu, which you know is really mainly only focused on the the Chinese market. If you're Uber, you know competing against DD is really hard because you know DD uh, is really focused on the the, Ch- the China market. Yeah. So in the fourth point, uh, so we call it norms over rules. So, you know, in the West, there's, you know, very well-defined, you know, rules and laws and, and, um, and actually in all, in some ways, sort of more merging uh, markets where business has not been established for, you know, decades or hundred plus years, you know, it's typical that actually there's much more of an informal institutions like networks, um, and, and personal connections are are important. And I think, you know, this is something that we also see tremendously in China. You know, you read, you see any sort of, you know, sort of airport business book on China, it talks about guanxi. Well, you know, it is sort of a little bit overdone, but it is also actually the case that this idea that, you know, informal relations, uh, trust, uh, are more important than, um, you know, sort of more, they may be the more formal aspects like, you know, sort of the contracts or a specific, uh, rules. So that would be the fourth and the fifth and last I'll just, is a relatively quick one because we've already talked about it is persistence. I mean, this is something that, you know, sort of was so important, um, you know, to, to, to Mao, you know, this, his idea of protect protracted war and the sort of grit and stamina, the Chinese businesses uh, have is is very impressive and certainly something to keep in mind.
1: Very helpful, um, I think, for quite a number of people to understand China a bit better. Um, and of course, anyone looking to do business or better understand what's happening, um, very helpful. Um, similarly, I was wondering if you could lay out the kind of principles of business that the book uh, discusses.
0: So, uh, so, th- so that actually was the principles of business that the, the, sort of for those five principles, sorry, sorry, that wasn't clear. I, um, get yeah, th- So that was in some ways the principles of business that we also think that sort of Westerners should, should understand.
1: Mm. Um, so I want to kind of, you, you've obviously mentioned this in some senses, uh, through examples already, right. Of particular companies that probably a lot of people are going to be familiar with like Huawei, um, right. but also sort of key, Instances, key things that have influenced the thinking. So, obviously, we've spoken about the fall of the USSR. Um, We've spoken about kind of Maoist education um, and this idea of sort of imprinting. We've talked about um, the special economic zones and the kind of experiment of that. But there's also one that the book talks about that is a lot less well known. And so, I was hoping you could tell us about the third front and how you guys think this is also part of this kind of group of influences?
0: Sure. So um, let me back up a second. So so the book uh, is organized in three core sections. Um, You know, as we see sort of the key, you know, in some ways, at a global level, Miles' key influences. So, one are his ideas, and this includes the military ideas and a variety of things that I've already mentioned. You know, like frugality and nationalism, and uh, etc. Uh, another part, which is the the final part, is around the institutions uh, that he created to govern the the political system and the economy. Uh, a really interesting, um, I think, in my my way, sort of the, my favorite part of the book. Uh, is the middle part of the book which is Miles campaigns. This is something that is, you know, very different I think than like a, you know a western government is run where, you know, there's a bureaucracy and things sort of plod along you know, in a continuous fashion. I mean, there's political campaigns, of course, you know, these sort of, um, you know, short or, or increasingly long, though, um, you know, instances of, of um, you know, politicians vying for to win a seat. But Mao, one of the thing, really characteristics of his of his rule was, uh, you know, these campaigns that it have, you know, we talked about, you know, sort of President Xi and the standing committee going to Yan'an, uh, you know, that was the site of a big campaign, you know, the Yan'an rectification where he was able to sideline, you know, all of his opponents Killed a bunch of intellectuals and sort of rose to the power of the Communist Party. Uh, Two of the campaigns that people are probably very familiar with, or at least somewhat familiar with, are the Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s, and then the Great Leap Forward uh, in the late 1950s, which then led to a massive famine where over 30 million people sadly died. Another campaign that we talk about that is, as you mentioned, less well-known is called the Third Front Construction. And this was re- is a really interesting project that Mao initiated, uh, which, you know, um, sort of after in the mid-1950s when China broke with the Soviet Union, you know, you know, China had enemies. Uh, the most powerful countries in the world were enemies of China, and Mao was very fearful that one of these countries could actually attack. Uh, and like happened in the Second World War, where Japan was able to actually pretty much take over uh, the most industrialized areas of China relatively quickly. Uh, you know, and and really China's um, ability to respond was crippled. Uh, Mao had the idea of relocating. Uh, important industries and defense um, capabilities to the hinterlands of China. This is sort of the third front, uh, you know, what what he called. And it was sort of in the center of China, mountainous regions. And, you know, if you think about uh, and why this is sort of interesting, um, you know, so you look at a a place like Xi'an, which is really very well known even today, for having a very well-developed aerospace industry. You know, that's because it, of this third-front construction that it actually, a lot of the aerospace was moved uh, moved to Xi'an. Uh, and so, you know, if you look at the U.S., uh, where, where I'm from, you know, actually a lot of the sort of technology that we use today, you know, be it actually in airplanes or be it, um, you know, things like, you know, the commerce or, you know, internet, excuse me, the internet or others actually were developed for the military. I don't think this, I mean, people think it's sort of Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, you know, all all these ideas are sort of sprouting from their heads, but there's actually a huge government and military foundation uh, underlying much of that innovation. So what this has done in China then is, that there is, um, you know, distributed in a really unique set of places, a lot of uh, of innovative activity, of sort of innovative activity and in entrepreneurship, and the level of entrepreneurship in, in these third uh, front cities is well beyond what it is in other Chinese cities, you know, at a gross level. And you can sort of do these like paired comparison tests of, you know, cities in the same province, um, you know, not that far from one another, but one, because it was this deep mountainous region was a third front city. And if you think about it, actually, you would think that typically mountainous regions would not be, um, you know, good places for entrepreneurship because they're somewhat sort of isolated. Uh, But actually, because of all this investment in military and industry uh, by the government to put, you know, hide things away, uh, those cities, there's a number of, of, um, you know, cities, or these um, more isolated cities actually have a very high rate of entrepreneurship. So there's a positive in that regard. Uh, However, there also is seen, In China, you know, in some cases, if these cities are not able to transform themselves, uh, somewhat of a rust belt issue, too, because if it's like, you know, transportation between, uh, you know, in supply chains is very difficult, it ends up being very expensive. So it does have this, in some ways, double-edged sword where there is a lot of really interesting entrepreneurship in unique uh, places in China and different places than, you know, if you look at the U.S., You know, it's the coasts, really, where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, well-known universities and there's, um, you know, a lot of investment capital and there's a lot of human capital. But in China, actually, it ends up being a little bit more uh, spread out.
1: (laughs) Well, I think one thing that the third front and its kind of continued influence um, shows us is, of course, the importance of politics and politicians in sort of explaining some of entrepreneurship and innovation in China. And of course, we've kind of touched on this in a number of ways already. Um, But I'd love to speak in a bit more detail about kind of something you briefly mentioned about kind of the impact of being in the CCP, the actual party itself, Um, because one of the parts of the book is looking at. Politicians' attitudes towards business. And this has quite a significant impact in a lot of ways. Can you tell us about these attitudes and particularly what differences we can see based on when they become part of the CCP?
0: Yeah. So, th- this is also um, another part of the book that's based on, you know, sort of a peer reviewed um, study in, in a leading journal in, in our field. And uh, basically, what we find is that. If they have sort of in some ways a deeper CCP or, uh, or Maoist imprint, uh, they're the those politicians are much less likely to establish uh, connections uh, with uh, businesses in their in their domain. Let me explain a little bit, about, what, you know, how we how we look at that and what that means. Uh, so, again, I mean, you 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 know, this this is based on. Uh, data we collected from po- politicians' resumes across over 300 cities and you know th- you know 20 to 30 years, uh, and we can sort of track them, sort of you know where where they were, you know when they entered the CCP, um, you know et cetera from from their resumes, and and then build a database out of it and do some some statistical testing. Uh, so the politicians that were you know joined the CCP before Mao passed away, uh, and perhaps had been through some, you know, more, you know, sort of deeper CCP socialization, so to speak. So, you know, things like, you know, depending on when where where the place they were they lived was liberated by the CCP, because that actually extended over a number of years, or whether they they'd been part of the Cultural Revolution you know, to try to sort of understand like, you know, how, you know, when and how they might've actually sort of had this deeper Maoist, uh, you know, early CCP imprint. So th- those, those folks, uh, and if you think about, it, we have in some ways four different types of types of people, we have the people that have experienced all this, um, all these CCP imprinting processes and before 1978, and then we have people that have had those same experiences, but we're not CCP members. And then after 1978, we have, you know, people that are part of the CCP and we have people who are not part of the CCP. So, you know, we can look at how these different sort of sets of groups end up um, acting. Uh, And so these politicians that are these really very deeply imprinted um, Maoists end up being much less likely to have businesses on the, uh, the, the major councils in their city. So this being, you know, there's, a, there's, uh, coming up in March in China, there's going to be the two meetings, which the people's Congress and the, and the consultative Congress, you know, of which many, you know, entrepreneurs and business people actually sit on those, those bodies. And those bodies aren't just at the national level, but they are at the provincial level, the city level, and even, even, even sort of lower levels like township and, and village level. So, uh, so, so we looked at within cities, like, okay, if you're going to be very, you know, if you're very deeply red, so to speak, you know. Are you going to actually be having business people in your uh, in your councils and much less likely to do that? Uh, And this is important, I think, or, you know, sort of in some ways counterintuitive or not counterintuitive necessarily, but it is in some ways interesting because actually for most of the last, you know, since Deng Xiaoping key, key performance indicator for politicians is GDP growth in their locale. So you would think for their own career advancement these individuals actually would want to be connecting to businesses, co-opting businesses by having them part of this council so very much in their self-interest. But, you know, you know, given that they're given the ones that we talked about with the deep CCP imprinting, they, you know, in some ways held back of that which we argue is a result of you know being indoctrinated so to speak in the you know this sort of very nationalist nationalistic anti-foreign ideas that Mao had
1: mm. and this is really key because of course um what this is all talking about is that we can't sort of artificially separate uh, business and government or politics in China right. and really in most countries. You can't really separate those out. Um, so similarly to how you described kind of the principles of business, um, what are the principles of governance that especially Western business people should be aware of?
0: Sure. Say a couple of things. Uh, one is politics at the center. I mean, I mentioned this a couple of times, you know, this sort of east, west, north, south, CCP runs everything. And this is something, um, yeah, the, the control of the CCP at of politics. And we've seen this in recent years as President Xi really take a much harder line on many industries. Also, I think the idea that there's actually economic decentralization. So, um, you know, this idea of these politicians being able to to economically grow their own areas and have their own KPIs is something actually that differs from the Soviet Union is something that as business um, people, that could be a real um, you know you, you don't need to necessarily go to the large cities I mean there's actually a lot of places outside of the the main cities and because of how decentralized um, the locales are you can really uh, find some, find some key markets uh, I think also even though we've talked a lot about ideology and sort of the strength of maoist ideology I mean there is in many ways I think a practical pragmatism uh, element too I mean the surround the cities f- from countryside uh, that I mentioned is a way of sort of adapting and being pragmatic. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the opening up of, of dung, I think is another way. So there is this, you know, sort of ideological pragma- pragmatism. Uh, importance of history, as I mentioned, is a, I think I'm on my fourth one now. So politics at the center, economic decentralization, ideological pragmatism. Yeah. A uh, historical, uh, histor- sort of the importance of history in understanding uh, and maintaining the past. Um, and then finally, for someone who's a pretty extreme guy (laughs) in a lot of what he did, as far as some of the political campaigns, uh, we still though think that moderatism, uh, so, you know, sort of aiming for harmony and moderation and, and modesty, you know, Mao actually, um, you know, was not, you know, uh, did actually believe, you know, sort of in his writings and sort of the doctrine of the mean, although in his actions, sometimes he, um, He did not. So, so those are the five different uh, areas that we come up with as we've done all this research and tried to distill things like what sort of practical guidance can we give to business and policy leaders? You know, this was what we settled on.
1: Well, thank you very much for sharing them with us, um, sharing this whole discussion. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of listeners who are very curious. So again, the book is titled Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise, out from Yale University Press, pretty much right now when this episode is coming out. Um, And we've had with us Dr. Christopher Marquis, one of the two authors of the book. Thank you so much for being with us, Chris.
0: Miranda, thanks so much. Really enjoyed the discussion.